All right, we're going to continue our series of The Servant King, and our reading today is Mark 7, 1 through 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the, to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you, are, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? since it enters not his heart but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Well, good morning. I'm uh, James, and I am on staff at the Vine Church. Um, let's go. And uh, part of my job description, my favorite part of my job description at the Vine is I get to help lead the basement, which is a youth group expression. Uh, it's a collective youth group. Uh, a lot of your kids here at the Redeemer City come. Uh, and it's a joy. Uh, I love it. It's my favorite part of what I get to do. And uh, was it two weeks ago we did what I think the best thing we've ever done at the basement, uh, a scavenger hunt using an app called Goose Chase. And I don't. a lot of you probably youth group uh, in prior years when you were youth, uh, a lot of times you go on a scavenger hunt, right? And you come back and then you kind of report in or you had like an old camera that you were taking photos. But now the times are that you can use an app and in real time take photos or videos and see what the other teams are posting. And it was awesome. Uh, just random crazy things that you can think of kids doing. Obviously the classics of like going through drive through right? But not with a car, uh, trying to order something. Uh, all the kids, there was one like jump fully clothed into a body of water and all the groups did that. I think there was like eight teams um, 
uh, Grace, I think, did it. Uh, oh, she's in the back. Uh, and I think they all did it, like, early on in the event, too. I was like, that's what I would do, like, last, right? Because it's, like, kind of cold out. Um, but uh, all the groups did it. It was super fun. I was sitting, I actually didn't even go out. I was sitting at the computer in the church office just like monitoring, like taking away points if they didn't quite do it right and adding points if it was extra good. So man, that was a blast for me. But all that to say, uh, I see some kids in here too that are probably getting into the sixth grade uh, realm. And when you get in the sixth grade, would love to have you join us at the basement. Uh, besides the fun and the memories we want to create, uh, ultimately it's about building solid and deep faith foundations uh, that, that students uh, would know Jesus and live for Jesus. And this year, kind of using the, the person of Daniel in the Old Testament as a springboard uh, of a person, really probably a teenager, uh, living in exile. Um, and what does it look like for him to have um, to not defile himself as, as what his desire was and how God uses that ultimately for his kingdom? Um, on earth. And so it's a blast. Love it. Uh, so thank you so much for letting me be here uh, today and continue your series in Mark. Um, and Nate wanted this this uh, sermon title to be called The Purifying King. And I, and I take it that every week there's another title for Jesus, right? Uh, so this week's is The Purifying King. Uh, well, let me say this. Let me ask this as, as a get, uh, getting going here uh, for our sermon. Uh, have you ever heard someone say uh, this, s- something like this uh, expression of, look, I know I'm not perfect, but deep down, I'm basically a good person. Something along those lines. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm basically a good person. Often I, I, I hear it after someone's made like a mistake or an error, uh, something that they did that was wrong of like, I know I'm not perfect, but I, but I am a good person, right? In my stage of parenting, I got three littles. Uh, we wa- obviously, I just watch a lot of kid movies in my stage of life. Uh, I don't even know what an adult movie is anymore. But I watch a lot of kid movies. And the one that we just watched a weekend before was Peter Rabbit. Anyone? Uh, the new-ish one. Uh, we watched it for like the 13th time uh, last weekend, and it, honestly, I always suggest this one because I like circumvent my three-year-old's, you know, suggestion. I actually kind of enjoy this one. Uh, but as you probably know, or if you've watched it or know the storyline, but the climax of this story is when McGregor's nephew explodes the rabbit's burrow uh, in such an explosive way that the tree hopefully I'm not giving anything away here, but the tree like falls on the neighbor's um, house, Miss B, who's like the, uh, the leading character in the story, destroys her house. But after this tree, you know, falls down, when Mr. McGregor's accused of the crime, he cautiously admits like, yeah, I had a little part in that doing, cautiously admits, but then yells in his British accent for everyone to hear in this moment, just so you know, I'm actually quite a good person. As like the home is destroyed in the background. I'm actually quite a good person. Or I think of John Gruden. If you're a football fan, you, you know him. He's a TV personality as well. But he was fired last year from the Las Vegas Raiders. And a lengthy report revealed a laundry list of offenses. And his apology, while acknowledging maybe some truth to the accusations, I still remember his apology a year later. This is his exact words. He says, I've been married for 31 years. I go to church. I've made mistakes, but I am a good person. I believe that. Those are his words. 
It's this line, of, I know I'm not perfect, but deep down, I, I really am a good person. Have, have you ever said something similar? I know I, know I have. It, it's our way of saying, sure, I, I'm guilty. You got me on this like one small offense. But, but look at the bigger, grander picture of who I am. I'm, I'm actually quite a good person. It's our culture, by and large, where we buy this truth that we're essentially good people, as Noah led us through confession this morning, that we're essentially good. Maybe, maybe I have a few errors or wrongs around the edges of my life, right? But at the, at the end of the day, even in that, it's not my fault. Because culture tells us again and again that like our issues, our errors, our wrongs, the things that surround my life, it, it's not my fault. It's the fault of something or someone else. In our passage today, Jesus is going to teach the contrary. Jesus will tell us that our faults are not external. It's not the fault of someone or, or something else. The fault doesn't lie out there. The fault lies in here. The heart of our problem is the problem of our heart. The problem of our heart, it's internal. And our only solution is in the person of our King, our purifying King. And so in our text this morning, our roadmap, we're going to see two things. We're going to see the source of our problem, which is our heart. The source of our problem, our heart. And then the solution to our problem, which is our King. That's our roadmap. The source of our problem, the solution of our King. Let's again pray and ask for God to put to life His words, not my words, but Jesus' words for us this morning. Jesus, we come to You now. and We ask by the power of Your Spirit, the power of Your Word, Lord, would You open our hearts to Your words and Your words to our heart. Lord, we want to be changed. Lord, would You prune back any hedge of of disbelief or doubt or distraction, and may we see you clearly in these moments we have together. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Okay, well, the source of our problem, verse 1, if you're tracking with me, if you have a Bible or turn on your Bible, or if it's on the screen too, it says, now when the Pharisees gathered to him or to Jesus with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, and apparently Jesus has created such a stir at this time that they've called in the big guns, right? These aren't the local scribes or Pharisees from this local village. These are the big guns. They're from Jerusalem, the center of Jewish faith. And that's important because we see that these officials have to be highly motivated to make this journey down to where Jesus is. This is a 90-mile journey one way. There's no Prius. There's no Uber. There's just good walking sandals, maybe. I don't know. But they're walking this 90 miles from Jerusalem. These are officials from the Jewish faith that they are motivated in confronting the escalating popularity of Jesus among their people. And so we see as when they gather and they see in verse 2 that they, the disciples are eating with their hands unwashed. It may appear that, oh, these are just religious elites who have some sort of hand-washing OCD issue going on, right? But as we dig deeper, we see that it's more than that. 
It's not just, Jesus, aren't you concerned about the hygiene and health of your disciples? And if, you know, students in this room, like, that's good proper hygiene, right? Washing your hands, especially in this cold season and flu season. But it's less to do with the hygiene of the disciples and everything to do with potential spiritual defilement before God. And and that is a serious issue. Verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. You see, this hand washing in question was a ceremonial washing, a religious washing to cleanse from potential defilements. It's a religious tradition, meaning if you were Jewish, this is just what you did. And this is what disturbed these Jewish leaders that Jesus' disciples didn't uphold this sacred religious tradition by not ceremonially washing their hands before eating. Like, how dare they? Don't they know? But notice Mark doesn't say this hand washing is is rooted in Scripture, does he? Verse 3, it's rooted in what? The tradition of the elders. The tradition of the elders. This isn't an Old Testament law. Nowhere in Scripture does God require this sort of hand washing that we see here in Mark. Yes, God's Old Testament law required priests to wash their hands before entering the tabernacle. Yes, Old Testament law required anyone who who touched bodily discharge to wash their hands. But no law of God required a person to participate in this sort of hand-washing. This was simply the product of a a self-created religious system at the time founded by these Jewish elders, mere men, who elevated it onto the same level as God's law. These traditions and Old Testament law seen as one. And for us now, sitting in Madison, to look back on these ancient washings, even in Old Testament law, it, it seems a bit, you know, archaic, doesn't it? Like, who cares at some level, right? And a little harsh and demanding, right? That the church would have like a standard of hygiene. I don't know about you, but I didn't get checked when I came in the door. Maybe I should have, but I didn't get checked. But I want you to think about it in the terms of this. Think of a first date. Think of a first date. Do you throw on any old t-shirt? before you go? Don't you look in the mirror before you head out? Don't you give yourself a little sniff test, you know, pop in an Altoid? Of course you do, right? You brush your teeth. You make sure you don't have any, you know, that little green speck in your teeth, right? That's embarrassing. You wash your clothes. You scrub your body. You comb your hair. You perfect everything about you, right? But why? Why? Because you're going to enter into the presence of someone, your date, that you hope wants to keep you around, right? You don't want to be cast off simply because of some filth or stain or something stuck on your tooth that you could have easily removed. See, the ceremonial washing of the Jewish faith was really of the same idea. That this effort of washing and cleansing, it served as a visual aid that reminded the Jewish people of their spiritual and moral uncleanliness, of their need for purification in order to stand before a perfect and holy God. 
unclean and unfit to stand in the presence of God. And on that, Jesus and these religious leaders like 100% in agreement. We agree. But where Jesus and these religious leaders clashed was on the source and on the solution to their uncleanliness. They clashed on the source and the solution of their uncleanliness. These religious leaders believed that the source of their defilement was external. The source was external, that the things of the world that they came in contact with, like Gentiles. Therefore, the solution was to cleanse and wash away this potential defilement. Like, wash yourself, cleanse yourself. You know, make yourself clean again and again and again. And they became, at this time, so extraordinarily rigid in these regulations that we see here in Mark, in verse 4, that even when they went to the marketplace, they would come and, and they would make sure that they washed. Because what if they bumped up into a Samaritan? What if they bumped up into, you know, an outcast, a sinner? you got to wash yourself just in case. Be, be safe. And he even says, like, they have this whole system of specific washings for, for cups and pots and pans and dining couches. Like, where do I get one of those? That sounds awesome. But they wash them in some sort of ritual, which leads the religious leaders. They're, they're serious about this. This is potential defilement. And so it leads them to ask in verse 5, they ask Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Jesus being Jesus, responds in verse 6 there and calls, calls them out. And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? In other words, religious leader, Isaiah, the prophet, he was actually talking about you. You are the one that we see there in verse 6, are the people who honors me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. That's you. You are the one who in vain worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's, that's you. You, religious leader, are the hypocrites. And I think all of us can nod our heads in agreement that we can present ourselves as pretty righteous people, pious. We can present external impressions as one who's religious and good and spiritual. We can figure that out, right? We can honor with our lips when in truth be far, far away from God. In quoting Isaiah, Jesus is calling attention to two different body parts, right? The lips and the heart. That the lips are on the surface, they're external. You can see my lips moving, right? But the heart is internal. It's inside. You, you cannot see my heart. Therefore, Jesus is saying, your, your mouths, religious leader, your mouths are going rightly. You, you're singing the right songs. You're praying the right prayers. You're expressing the right loves. But all of that movement of your lips is not going any deeper than that of just your lips. It's not going anywhere. It's not traveling down into your heart. It's not penetrating the very core of your being. 
It's these religious leaders saying, hey, look at me and my righteousness. Jesus, you won't see me eating bread without washing my hands. Look at my righteousness. But Jesus turns it back onto them saying, that's all just a show. That's theatrics. That's a facade. That's a show of your lips. Because that's not the truth of your heart. The truth of your heart is what there in verse 6? A heart far from God. Jesus is making a point that our human effort, our self-created traditions and rituals then and for us now can make us look good. But it will never, never make our hearts right with God. And Jesus illustrates this for them by using one of their own well-known traditions that we see here in verses 9 through 13. It's the tradition of Corbin. The tradition of Corbin. And Corbin is a spiritual tradition that would... uh, that had everything to do with like a, a sacrificial gift of your wealth or property back to the church. And so it's a good tradition. It's a very good spiritual tradition. But ultimately it becomes a tradition that becomes so twisted up and distorted that over time it becomes a loophole for the Jewish people to neglect one of the very clear commandments that we have, the Ten Commandments of honoring your mother and father. So, so follow along with me in verse 9. And Jesus says to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, it's given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus making the word of God by your tradition, or thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many, and many such things you do. And many such things you do. So what's going on? I had to read this a few times. I think this is really confusing. The the Jews really have developed Corbin, this this setting aside of money as as really a deferred uh, plan of giving. That... I'll make a promise now while I'm alive that my wealth future will be given to the church. But that meant while alive, all their wealth stayed right in front of them. All their wealth stayed right in front of them, meaning they could spend it as they were living, however they desired or wanted. But it meant that nobody could put a demand on that money. It could not be spent for anything or anything else for their wealth had been set aside, reserved for God. So in this case, it'd be like, I'm sorry, mom. I'm sorry, dad. Like, I know you're getting old. I can see you getting old. I know you need help. And I'd like to help, but my finances are Corbin. And you know, like, it's set aside for God, and that's a good thing. So I want to help, but I, I can't. But that's what's going on here. A great tradition, a good practice of being generous with your money ultimately becomes this greedy practice to keep all your money right in front of you, escaping God's very clear command in Scripture of honoring your father and mother. Jesus brings Corbin to the forefront to illustrate this point that human effort, these self-created traditions and rituals it might look, make you look good, 
but it will never make your heart right with God. It will never make your heart right with God. Corbin made a lot of Jews at this time look really good, like, wow, look at that guy. He's practicing Corbin. He must be generous. Wow. But did Corbin cleanse their heart? Not at all. In fact, all Corbin did was expose the sheer depravity of the human heart. Their hearts are selfish and prideful, greedy and wicked, forsaking the commands of God, even our own parents, flesh and blood, in order to gain selfish desires like wealth. See, Corbin, in, in every religious tradition and practice, it, it really permits the human heart to just run amok, unchecked, for, for everyone around us just to look at our external presentation of our spirituality and just assume, like, well, they got it together. They're practicing Corbin, like they must have it going on with God, when in reality a heart could be far away from God. Which is why in verse 7, Jesus quotes Isaiah saying, in vain do they worship me. In vain do they worship me. The tradition of Corbin isn't what God is after. The tradition of Corbin is not what God is after. These hand-washing ceremonies, God's not after those. God is after your heart. God is after your heart. And the Pharisees and the scribes missed that. They thought God wanted clean hands. They thought God wanted clean hands, but what God really wanted was their heart. That's what he's always wanted. That's what he's always wanted. He, he's, he's not after any of our church attendance. He, he's not after our Bible reading. He's not after our tithing. He's not after our righteous behavior. He's not after your spiritual perfection. He's after your heart. In John 4, when Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the well, he says to her, and I quote, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. See, God is seeking true worshipers, not hypocrites. God wants nothing more than for you to know him and to love him and to desire him. It's it's a relationship. It's not a, a duty or an obligation that we just check off. I went to church, check off. I'm okay now. It's a relationship. And yet the very thing that God is after is the very thing that leads us away from Him. It's the very thing that makes idols out of our traditions and rituals. It's the problem of our heart. And it's not something that just affects the Pharisees and scribes then. It affects you and I and, and everyone. It's the problem of our human hearts, which is why Jesus calls everyone together here in his audience. In, in verse 15, he says, come here, let me tell you something. In verse 15, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that our wickedness is not a result of any external thing. Our problem, our dysfunctions, they're not a result of bad company or unfortunate circumstances. Our wickedness is a result of a wicked heart. If you don't believe me, go sign up to be a volunteer in the toddler room for a month. All you need to do is observe a bunch of toddlers in a room together. 
to see a toddler come to another toddler, push them down, to steal the toy. They're not doing it because the other children made them do it, is, are they? They're doing it because they're going to do whatever it takes to get that toy. Our wickedness is the result of a wicked heart. No one. I'm a parent. I've never taught my kid to disobey, but they disobey. They know how to do wrong instinctively. After I graduated from Iowa State, which is really the Harvard of the Midwest, if you ask me. That's right. That's right. I was tough getting in. Tough getting in. I made the decision after uh, Iowa State to go in to Moody Bible Institute, um, to seminary for pastoral training. And in between, I stayed home um, in that year, and I got a job at the OG, the Olive Garden. When you're here, your family loved it. And I paid off all my school debt, which was one of the best decisions I ever made. But so I was a committed Christian, loved Jesus, headed to seminary. And while I was working at the Olive Garden, I began developing friendships uh, that ultimately just kind of led me down uh, pursuing, you know, just sinful desires of the world with these, with these friends. And, at, you know, at the time I was deeply involved in my home church, helping with kids and youth ministry um, and getting experience, right, as I prepared for seminary. And, but I was, I was really in this year, like, living this duplicitous life. Like, on one hand, having a good time with my OG friends, enjoying the pleasures of the world, but on the other hand, trying to teach and model the kids and students the love of Jesus. Like, that's a duplicitous life. And no one in my church knew of my, like, after-work sinful shenanigans. Like, externally, I presented myself, and quite easily, like, well, like I was seen as morally upright and pure, but inwardly I was just moving further and further and further away from God. And I could blame, I could blame all my bad life choices on the bad company I kept during that year. I could do that. But the truth is I made those bad life choices because my heart was already bent on doing those bad things. Jesus says as such in verse 21, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. I made bad life choices because my heart was already bent on doing those things. For Jesus says, out of the heart comes what? Evil. It's already in us. Our wickedness is a result of a wicked heart. Did the friendships I kept that year at the OG like help me make bad choices? Absolutely. But the real problem wasn't out there. It wasn't my friends. The real problem was in here. It always starts and ends with our heart. Sin doesn't come from our feet or our hands. It comes from within us, our very being. Apart from Christ, we will always sin. We want sin. And we could look at this list in 21 and be like, I don't know, I'm doing all right. Theft, I haven't robbed a bank, right? Murder, doing all right. Adultery, doing all right. We could look at that list and be like, okay, I think I'm measuring up. But when we get into verse 22, it gets a little more uncomfortable. Coveting. 
deceit, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All right, you got me there, (laughs) right? We know we're guilty of these things as we get into verse 22, which is why we're so quick of just slapping on this religious patch of good works or tradition. We, we crave a system, a manner by which we can just justify our wrongs and our faults. This is why a tick-box religion of self-created rules and regulations is attractive to the Jewish people then and to us now. Because it frees us, it justifies us from any guilt or shame we might have from our sin. But the problem is the slapping of a religious patch and an already defiled heart will not make things right. The religious leaders at this time did everything by the book, but they're still responsible for sending Jesus to the cross. Outwardly squeaky clean. Not going to find a mark on them. But inwardly horrifically defiled. You can't clean the inside by cleaning up the outside. It won't work. When your car starts rattling, you don't take it to the car wash, do you? You take it to the mechanic. Jesus exposes the heart of the problem by revealing to us the problem of our heart. The problem of our heart. And if this were the end of it, all of humanity would be man. It'd be terrible, right? All of our hearts bent towards evil. But this, I want you to hear this, this is what makes the gospel so glorious. If all of our hearts are bent towards evil, where are we going? This is what makes the gospel so glorious, the solution of our king. The solution of our king. For the Christian, there's hope. Our self-effort will never make our hearts clean before God, but the effort of another can and does. It's Jesus, our purifying king. You know this verse in Ephesians, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It doesn't matter what you were before you came before the throne of grace, entered your life, what matters is the sufficiency of Christ after to change your sinful heart, to clean your heart. When the prophet Nathan confronts David on his adultery with Bathsheba, David writes what? Create in me a clean heart. O God, renew a right spirit within me. David understood that he, he needed external help to deal with his internal issue. He needed external help. This was not something that he could solve by looking at himself. The only way, David, and your problem, my problem, the problem of our heart is solved is by looking to God, our purifying king. In our text, you know, we can read through it as much as we want, but Jesus doesn't give us like seven steps to becoming a better person, does he? He doesn't give us a list of things to do because he's on his way of being our solution. In a short time, we'll see that Jesus goes to the cross, paying our penalty for our sin by dying our death. The prophet Ezekiel puts it like this. God says to his people, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. 
notice who's doing all the action in this verse. It's not you. It's not me. It's God. It's only God who can make a heart clean, change a heart. So as we read through this list in, in verse 21 and 22, it's only God can take a heart bent towards sexual immorality and turn it into a heart of purity. It's only God who can take a heart bent towards theft and turn it into a heart of generosity. Take a heart bent towards murder and make it a heart of love. A heart of idolatry into a heart of honor. A heart of coveting to a heart of contentment. A heart of wickedness into a heart of righteousness. A heart of deceit into a heart of honesty. A heart of sensuality into a heart of virtue. A heart of envy into a heart of joy. A heart of slander into a heart of benevolence. A heart of pride into a heart of humility. A heart of foolishness into a heart of wisdom. You see, it's God who's the actor changing our hearts. For a heart to be transformed is through His life, His life, death, and resurrection of our purifying King. I'm sure Nate has said this quote a lot. Tim Keller. The gospel is this. We're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Friend, if you're here today and you've never repented of your sin, if you never asked God to change your heart, to give you this heart of flesh, remove your heart of stone, I encourage you to do so. Because until you do, you'll be no different than the Pharisees and the scribes who believe that some sort of external action will fix an internal problem. It's just not going to work. Christian, today, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, I wonder how many of us might perhaps be living in a specific failure from our past. Remembering it often that we feel guilty about something that we did before. Perhaps a failure that you've been expending a great effort to just make up and to justify. I just want to remind you today that there's no amount of religious activity that will make it right or to cleanse you. No religious tradition or practice is ever going to give you true or lasting peace. Only Jesus can do that cleansing must come from the inside out. From the inside out. As sin is exposed in our lives, Christian, there's no need to throw up religious patches. There's no need. Jesus calls us in His kindness to come in repentance and faith. Again and again and again and again. Repentance and and faith. For it's only the blood of Jesus which cleanses us. It's the only the blood of Jesus that cleanses us. No amount of our human effort will do. It's only Christ's effort that will do. And Christian, if you're here this morning, you're hiding behind some righteous or spiritual good-looking image, just stop it. Stop it. You're not fooling Jesus. You're only fooling 
yourself. The good news is there's forgiveness at the cross. There's forgiveness at the cross. Come with your sin again and again to the foot of the cross. This is why your church practices communion every Sunday on repeat. Because we need to be reminded and again and again reminded of just our, where our strength and nurture comes from, right? In our purifying king. It's not our effort, it's his effort. The heart of our problem is the problem of our heart. And our solution is only found in Jesus. Let's continue to believe that together. Amen? Jesus, we love you. And we do thank you for your free gift that we don't deserve. Lord, we thank you for your life, death, and resurrection. That we can take our mess to you, Jesus. And that your blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Lord, I pray that you would continue to make us a people that believes that. Lord, that we would put our confidence and hope not in anything that we do or say, but it would only reside in what you've already accomplished for us. Lord, I pray for anyone here in this room who perhaps has doubts or confused or questions about who you are, Jesus. Who are you, this purifying king? Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would stir in them just a boldness and a courage to ask questions, to to ask you, Jesus, ask you, God, for insight and wisdom. Lord, that your words ultimately that we've seen here today would come to life, and that you would put them to life, eternal life. We pray that by the power of your Spirit. Lord, I pray as we leave this facility this morning, Lord, that we would go forth into our community of Madison as individuals with nothing to prove, with nothing to lose, but we would just walk faithfully again and again, coming back to you, Jesus, at the foot of the cross in repentance and faith. Lord, we love you, Jesus, and we thank you for your death and resurrection. In your name we pray. Amen.